0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This program is made possible thanks to the generosity of our listeners. Show your support at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate.
2: This week on Meet and 3, we're embracing the spooky spirit of Halloween from zombies to witches. We're exploring the odd, the occult, and the taboo in the world of food. There are restaurants with no storefront shrunken down into hundreds of square feet versus thousands of square feet. No servers, no hosts, nobody taking your order. The rats in the sewers are now smelling, all of a sudden, fresh food molecules. And those rats were like, holy cow, follow that scent.
3: Tune in to Meat and 3, HRN's
2: weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts.
3: I'm Alison Kane, and welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building consumer brands from the ground up. I love doing this show because I get to interview everyone from production gurus to marketing and social media mavens, anyone who can guide me on this crazy journey. This is the story of building Haven's Kitchen Sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Ben Goodwin and Eli Weiss, respectively the founder CEO and the customer service director at Olipop the low-sugar, probiotic, fiber-rich, healthy soda alternative that is, as they say, killing it. If you're following consumer products these days at all, you'll probably recognize Olipop since it's been steadily gaining traction on the East Coast after it blew everyone away in California. Earlier this year, Olipop launched its D2C channel, and with that came a whole new meaning to customer service. So I asked Ben and Eli to come on together to talk about the company, but also to focus on customer service, because we haven't really talked that much about this on the podcast. So welcome both.
4: Thanks so much for having us.
3: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And there's Eli. And I got a good tip early on when we went remote that... I should try directing the questions so that there isn't that awkward pause where you're waiting for each other <laughs> to answer. Fair enough. So I'm going to try to do that. Welcome, Ben.
4: Hey, thanks for having me.
3: Welcome, Eli. Hey, hey. It's great
2: to be here.
3: <laughs> um, Hey, hey. So I want to talk about uh, CX, as the cool kids call it, um, especially in the world of direct to consumer. It's it's kind of got a whole new meaning and we've gotten a bit of a um, I think they call it something by, by baptism, baptism by fire or something. There's Mm -hmm. some expression we've had to learn it um, pretty quickly. I, I have a a brick and mortar background, so I sort of have this like, well, I, I have customer service in my bones, but it's a different animal. Um, So I do want to get to that, but, um, then, I also just want to get to Olipop. It's like, I, if I had a crush on a brand, this is the brand that I have a crush on. I am nice. not alone. Um, and I think that's normal to have a crush on a brand, right? Um, and I'm not a big soda person, but I just think everything is just clicking so beautifully for you. So I want to hear a little bit. I know this is not your first rodeo. Yeah. Um, I want to hear about you and David, I believe is your co-founder mm-hmm. um, and just how Olipop came to be.
4: Yeah, for sure. I mean, it, it has been quite quite a journey. Uh, I've been a product developer in the health and wellness space and, and specifically in the kind of microbiome and digestive health space for uh, pretty much 15 years. Uh, so seeing some of the show notes that you are aware of all that, but I mean, (laughs) you know, it all basically started, you know, early on in my life, I, uh, ate what is often referred to as the standard American diet. Mm -hmm. And, uh, as is typically the case with the standard American diet, it, (laughs) it didn't work out too well for me, uh, physiologically. So I grew up as this kind of overweight, younger kid. And when I was actually fairly young, 14 or 15, I had the epiphany that uh, this, along with some other things that were happening in my life, was not really going to lead to a good, good, good life. Like for very life mature. The yeah. yeah, I mean, it was it it literally like hit me overnight. Um, I just actually recorded a way too elongated podcast about my life where I go into harrowing levels of detail and all this, but the basic <laughs> point is, it literally was an overnight thing. Um, mm-hmm. And so I just woke up the next morning and was like, "All right, screw this. I'm going to start." eating less and eating healthier and exercising and yada, yada, yada. And I also went vegetarian around that time because I learned what factory farms were.
1: Mm-hmm. I'm
4: not a vegetarian now. I'm super picky and, and trying right. to be very mindful about the animal products I consume. But at the time I was like full, full blown vegetarian I actually went vegan for a while as well. So I'm, I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm trying to pay attention to my physical health and I'm trying to have this kind of overhaul of my health and I'm also shifting diets and I don't want to lose any kind of critical nutrients and, the way my brain works is when I get into stuff, I get a little maybe I get really into stuff, and um, right. especially if I feel like it's got this a healthful, um, empowering component to it. And as I went down this rabbit hole on nutrition, I started experimenting more and more and more, and eating all sorts of different types of foods. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the big kind of click moment for me was a couple of years into this transformation when, okay, fine. I lost a bunch of weight. I lost like sixty pounds. Wow! In, you know, in less than a year, at fourteen, fifteen. Yeah. Uh, so obviously, I had more energy. I felt more comfortable with in my skin. But as I went, kind of got more into the, what I, like the concentrated nutrition. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, I found it was affecting not just my physical health, but also really like my mental stability, my emotional stability, right. my speed of thought, my clarity of thought. It it's just giving more energy, and I, I really viewed it as this mechanism as this is kind of like a base of the pyramid of of what I basically like to call like a self-actualization or it's a personal empowerment tool. Right. Um, And I recognize, you know, I'm, I'm, I have the kind of insanity if you would (laughs) to like really tunnel down this hole. But then a lot of people I'm I'm kind of seeing in in society around me are not doing the same. And I'm really seeing the difference in terms of how it's packed in their lives. So that is kind of what broadly made me interested in, you know, converting my life energies into the food and health and wellness space, and trying to create these different kind of vehicles for personal empowerment and, and wellness is because of how it affected me. Wow! Uh, you know, I participated in uh, a buddy of mine was starting a kombucha company, which I joined when I was twenty. Uh, I did a lot of in college.
3: Like, did you did Well, you, did so you go to college?
4: I, I did go to college and then I dropped out. So right. I'm a, I am a college <laughs> dropout. I was going for environmental science. I was going to UC Santa Cruz, actually. Right. Uh, and that's a whole long story. Uh, I had a mentor who's a civil rights activist. He actually won a Supreme Court case. Uh, by himself without legal representation in 1983. Oh <laughs> He's the reason why it's illegal for police to ask you for your ID without probable cause, although that's been undermined by the Patriot Act, et cetera, et cetera. But, um, so I was also throwing raves. I, I, do, a lot, I do a lot of stuff. Wow. I was throwing these raves, uh, these different events. He ended up coming to one. He was also, an, in addition to being the civil rights activist, he, he was also a pretty um, meaningful event producer. He was taking over this theater in Monterey. 15, or he was taking over as the executive producer for this theater in Monterey. He, he went to one of my shows, really liked what I did. I actually ended up just seeing him out in public like two weeks later, struck up a conversation with him because I had recognized him as an attendee at one of my right, events. Right. Um, and he's like, I liked your work. Why don't you come down to the theater and we could talk about, you know, you basically working with me, you know, helping me to produce these events. So I did. End up being these like 10 hour long, you know, multi-day conversations on, you know, basically it was just like, Okay, here's the here's some good mind expanding information on the structure of society. Right. Some, you know, on the structure of how things are laid out. I obviously found it really fascinating and inspiring. You got
3: educated. Yeah. Yeah.
4: And, you know, one of the things that I took away from that was, you know, this this gentleman, obviously he had the raw neurological firepower and the oratory skills to execute on this, but he, you know, basically just went to the Berkeley Law Library, studied up on the law, and that's how he became that's that's the methodology by which he actually accomplished the the knowledge set to 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 generate this great outcome right. um, and so you know I don't know it's overly simplistic, but at the time uh I was just like you know I come from like a, a relatively like impoverished childhood like financially, and mm-hmm. I, it was like, I'm gonna be putting myself through college and right. I just kept going to all these different events, even orientation it was like if you show up with $400, you can sign up for classes now. And if mm-hmm. you don't, you have to sign up in two weeks. And I was just like, well, I don't have $400. Am I just going to keep being in this yeah. position where every time you can get ahead with finance? So I just kind of viewed myself as being a little bit of a cash machine for the university. Yeah. Um, I was getting this kind of alternative psychological framework. I also did read um, the founder of Cliff Bar put out an interesting book about mm-hmm. entrepreneurialism. Yeah. About taking the alternative path. I read that. <laughs> and it's, I don't know, it all kind of clicked together that... Uh, and, and this is, again, it's a little bit of the overly simplistic logic. But yeah, I, it's hard to
3: sum up, you know, 30 or 20 years in, in six minutes. So it's 100%. It, yeah.
4: Yeah. And I'm also being too long-winded. But I guess I got yeah. to the point where I realized that I was attending college because I was scared of what would happen if I didn't. Right. I wasn't sure that it was totally the right fit for me and my trajectory as a human being. So I decided to just yep. get right involved directly with entrepreneurialism with products. Yeah. And so as a part of that, I was looking for different opportunities, felt strangely drawn to beverage friend of mine was starting a kombucha company. So I got involved with that, helped do a lot of the productions, uh, you know, a lot of the ops and production and, and product work. Uh, and that's also when I learned about the microbiome. Right. Uh, so that's a whole long thing, but basically part of the, part of what, one, one of the functions of the microbiome is this thing called the brain gut axis. Mm-hmm. So it's the idea that you produce a lot of neurotransmitters, which in your impact, your thinking and your mood, um, and those are actually fermented in your microbiome. And I have that kind of eureka moment like, oh, this might be the, ma- the kind of the place where um, that kind of stability of psychology and emotional outcome meet with what you are choosing to put in your body or not put right. in your body. So,
3: right, which seems, you know, now seems fairly obvious. And yet, I mean, 15 years ago, that was not obvious at all. And, I mean, I listened to GT Dave's How I Built This, and if anyone hasn't, like, it's kind of fascinating. But, um, you know, kombucha and, I mean, fermentation and even just understanding sort of the standard slash sad American diet, you know, no one was really – talking about that mainstream until I, maybe Michael Pollan, Omnivore's Dilemma, 2012, right? 2011. Um, And, you know, now everyone's like, obviously what you eat is going to affect your, you know, your thinking, your sleeping, your skin, your brain, your, you know, your mood, all of it. Um, But that's, I mean, that's unusual for a 20 year old kid to, To put together. And then to kind of, I mean, it sounds like it was sort of serendipitous that your friend wasn't starting, you know, a luggage company. He was starting a kombucha company, which is like right in your line of, you know, like right in your, I don't know, I'm picturing like a golf course and like you're like right in the line of your driver or whatever. (laughs) I tend to use very bad sports metaphors (laughs) on this podcast. And I am not an athlete, which is very obvious from the metaphors that I use, but for some reason, they always come out of me. Um, So you worked in the kombucha company, you obviously learned a lot. And then did you go and then start ob yourself like you you then went and founded another company or yeah you- yeah
4: so I, I did leave the kombucha company after about two years um and then did a bunch of like assorted product development just to kind of i wanted to learn how to make a bunch of different stuff and so right. i did that uh i also talked to a lot of customers uh, about their health issues which was really eye-opening for me probably technically shouldn't have been talking to them about right. health issues given I'm not <laughs> well, you were a were doing <laughs>
3: consumer research. Yeah,
4: yeah, yeah. But but a lot of customers do end up coming to health food companies and talking yeah. about um, different issues that they probably, you know, in theory would ideally be able to go talk to their, yes. their doctor about. So I, I felt like it was getting a lot of insight and, and experience. Uh, but then, you know, as a young guy in your 20s doing product development, you know, and, and making a living off of it, living in expensive California. I did feel like I, was, I often ended up making the kind of more esoteric product or the more high end product, mm-hmm. making products for consumers who maybe already had too many products and mm-hmm. I, you know, health products and I did want to do something at larger scale and I knew I wanted to do it in the kind of digestive and microbiome space and I just kind of had this idea of all right, uh, you know, I've I've done work in kombucha, I've seen how kombucha, you know, especially at that time is is really taking off, uh, but then I obviously have this direct experience like for every one person who can get behind the taste the vinegar taste of kombucha. There's like mm-hmm. five a to lot ten of people, people who are like that not not in a million years. Right. Um so I'm like those people are missing out on the, the benefits of fermentation. So uh yeah that basically kicked off OB. That was a the RD process on that was was really long. I mean that was just like a wild gambit. That was insane. I mean it was totally insane. I spent over three hundred mm-hmm. thousand dollars of my own cash from working three different jobs while I was also living by coastally right. uh, building these different fermentation facilities and working with microbiologists and organic chemists and flavor chemists, and we basically mutated our own culture bank. And then I learned, which is you know roughly modeled on water kefir, and then learned how to build that in a scaled facility and all these kind of biochemical systems that kept the kept the ferment in check. It was it was a pretty under daunting experience, and then right. eventually kind of put that into a soda esque format. You know, also because I started to have this idea of like it's not audacious enough just to try to overhaul the fermentation, healthy fermentation opportunity. But I also want to now also take a dig at soda. So uh, that was, that was logical. But, you know, through that (laughs) process, uh, I had been looking for a business partner actually for three years. I was looking for a business partner. I, you know, I had some, some uh, relationships that didn't quite fit. So I had to move on from them. And that is eventually where I actually met David. It was probably about like year three and a half or year four, into that R and D cycle. Um, and it was really like, it was amazing timing. You know, David's an amazing human being. We, and we gel really, really nicely. Like, um, you know, I'm kind of the. Mad uh, yeah, scientist. Yeah. I'm the mad scientist. <laughs> Slightly less psychologically stable, but right. maybe a little bit more willing to take risks and, right. and, 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 pivots. Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, I have the kind of ops and technical background, you know, David's this, like, uh, if you ever talk to him he's a, he's a smooth, polished um you know british guy who uh-huh. has a background in blue chip cpg with diageo and really worked on like the brand and marketing right. side um rolling out innovation it's like a
3: perfect like arnold schwarzenegger danny devito twins yeah. scenario
4: yeah i i couldn't agree more yeah <laughs> i will uh, not say who's who but yeah um, i'm like
3: i'm not sure who's who either <laughs> but i like it i like it or yeah. like a, you know yeah uh I don't so want was to see great... Beavis and Butt but something like that, yeah, so,
4: yeah. So it was, that was a really that's you know that synergy kicked in. You know, we we got the branding together I actually had this the is right. Still at
3: this is still at Obi like this because there there was another soda, right? Is that so?
4: Obi Obi Ob basically turned into what we ended up calling like a probiotic soda, and then we kind of actually took soda off of the label because at that time, especially consumers especially coastal consumers weren't super open to the concept of a healthy right. soda. I think that is shifting and we're also playing on a national level now. So there's different regions mm-hmm. that respond differently to the concept, but right. you know, at the time it had a lot of so- soda characteristics. Like we right. did have okay. a root beer and we had lemon limes. Right. Like that. Um,
3: and he yeah. came and in so- that business with you.
4: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. So he came in pre-launched that business as I was wrapping up this gargantuan R and D effort. Yeah. He came in, the, the fit was correct between the two of us and that got, the, the, got it going, uh, you know, as a business. So we were in that company for about two years. Uh, we did end up uh, exiting in late 2016. That's kind of a long story, which I don't super want to get into because there are some different <laughs> dynamics. But, uh, we, you know, we ended up basically growing the thing by about 250% year on year, picked up a bunch of accolades um, for the product and the innovation. Um, and then, you know, there's these different dynamics where we decided that it was a good time to exit in, in late 2016. So, so we did, Great.
3: um, Amazing. yes. And then were you, and did you know that you were going to do another one? Like, were the two of you like, okay, now we can, oh really my God, do what we want to do.
4: Well, so that, I mean, that's the thing. like beverage entrepreneurialism is, is, uh, it's like being in a 55 round boxing match yeah. like, just intrinsically. It's, uh, yeah. especially if you're trying to come from a place of legitimate, mission and like authenticity right. you know it's 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 there's a lot of intensity associated with it and and you know it's like managing the stress and managing the different dynamics and the mm-hmm. fundraising is this constant drumbeat and all that kind of stuff so we actually did not a, immediately come out of that venture um knowing if we want to do, do something again you know we actually had had a lot of conversations about it i actually hopped on a plane and spent a couple of weeks in japan and just kind of like which place i'd always wanted to go and i cooled my head and i like drank a lot of japanese drinks and you know it's like kind of just tried to try to figure out what we wanted to do next and we did kind of come to the concept of like you know basically like if we're gonna if we're gonna go after it again it's we've just got to do it like 10 times better you know i'm not if i go for one punch and i'm like i feel good about that punch but it, it wasn't everything i wanted it to be i'm coming back like infinitely like the next one's gonna land and and connect and go all the way through it so yeah
3: and i that's why i love having like people who've done it before on because i will ask you after like i want to know sort of the things that you were like this was a b or a c plus in my last one this has to be an a plus in this one like what were those things and we'll get to it after after the intro section um but i do i i love having second or serial entrepreneurs on for that very reason. Cause we make so many mistakes and there's so many things even now that I'm like advising people, you know, three months behind me not to do. Um, So I can, even if it doesn't, the first venture isn't out of the park, which it sounds like yours was pretty close. You still learn so much that the second time around, you're just inevitably gonna, gonna make some smarter decisions probably.
4: Uh, I agree 100%. And I think that that is especially true in CPG broadly and then doubly true in in beverage. Because beverage is, I mean, that's one of the things that's funny is like, I don't, coming from more of this scientific, even artistic, you know, background, I'm not the kind of natural uh, business kind of archetype, you know? So Mm -hmm. it, it is really like, yeah, it's like, so jumping into an industry, which is actually business on expert mode as your starting place, right. uh, it's going to be turbulent. Like it's not, you know, you're going to have to learn a lot and super quickly. And that actually yeah. is part of why I chose entrepreneurialism. So that works for me, but that's a whole other conversation. Yeah. Um, yeah so I think, you know, if we, we figure out if we're going to come back, we're going to come back harder. I started looking at the research, trying to find out, which is, you know, basically my go-to at this point in time when I'm deciding whether or not a Kind of basically like a product deserves to exist. Mm-hmm. Um, is there kind of like research around it? Is there right. is there meaningful value? Are we solving a human problem? Yeah. Are we are we are we actually and we're doing it in a way that's credible? Uh, yeah. And that's when I started to see this kind of downshift in the credibility, the scientific credibility behind probiotics. That's a whole long conversation, but you know, it's enough to say that basically, like in the EU, the European Food Safety Authority, which is basically Europe's FDA doesn't even allow companies to make probiotic claims they've rejected because right, over-
3: they die before you even open the bottle right the like-
4: vast majority of them yeah. are dead in the bottle or the or the uh pill yeah. and the ones that aren't most of those die in the gastric acid or the mouth right. the, the very few the like 10 percent that actually make it where they need to go um they're also quite transitory so they'll typically right. excrete it out within 24 to 72 hours yeah. so there's, there's a long conversation there but basically you know obviously a bit of a bummer to me given I still believe in fermentation i just think there's a lot of um weaknesses in our Mm -hmm. in the way we approach uh probiotics which is is now basically being borne out through the research right and then there's this other uh line of study that's been popping up because to your point the point that you made earlier it's like micro the microbiome research broadly is is a burgeoning field right it's Mm -hmm. like new discoveries all the time things are shifting so that's very exciting uh, and one of those shifts was this uh, trend of research studying different indigenous hunter-gatherers, you know, basically people who've been eating these indigenous diets that, have, that uh, you know, we we consuming for millions of years before we got to where we are now. Um, and uh, the, basically the differences in those diets and the differences in their <laughs> microbiome and their health outcomes. And, uh, you know, basically preening through all the research and realizing that the big difference both in the individual research and in the translational research is industrialized consumers are not getting enough fiber. Right. They're not getting enough prebiotics and they're not getting enough nutritional diversity. And so those are the three big things I wanted we'll to encapsulate into Olipop. And then obviously translate into, you know, what we like to, to kind of phrase as the kind of this Trojan horse of putting into this like very accessible, delicious, well-branded soda product. product. And that that's Olipop.
3: Yeah. I mean, so quick question about that. Obviously, I understand coming from like a degree in sustainability, I understand biodiversity like the back of my hand. And I understand fiber. Can you just break down the difference between fiber and a prebiotic? Because I always thought fiber just prepared your body for for you know, I always thought of it as a prebiotic, but obviously there's a difference between fiber and prebiotics. Will you just explain that? Just
4: yeah, know. absolutely. So so first of all, if there's a little confusion on your end or anybody's end, don't blame yourself. Like even the <laughs> the regulatory terminology has shifted over the last year or so. So it's right. it's like it's not so basically fiber broadly exists in two buckets: there's soluble fiber and insoluble fiber. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay so sense. insoluble fiber is roughage. Mm-hmm. It basically is stuff that you're not breaking down with your mouth, you're not breaking down with your gastric acids. It's largely going into your body and passing out of your body in an undigested state. Now, roughage is really important because it basically provides this kind of defensive flotilla to make sure that the food that you're consuming actually gets to key areas of the digestive tract and microbiome where the it can do the most good. Right. So if you're eating food that doesn't have enough roughage, it's basically going to happen is you're going to have too much breakdown of that food in the large intestines where you might be feeding bacteria you don't want to feed, or uh, it's just the sugar is going to go into your bloodstream too quickly, which is going to cause insulin spikes, et cetera, et cetera. So fiber is right. really good at making sure the food breaks down at a nice slow pace and that enough of the valuable nutrients get to the large intestines, which is where the majority of your digestive microbiome live. Um, it also is kind of a bit of a workout for your digestive tract, which turns out is actually important. Right. The, then there's soluble fibers. A soluble fiber, it, the solubility is solubility in water or liquid. That's where the soluble comes from. Soluble fiber um, is more likely to be a prebiotic. It's not always a prebiotic, but it is oftentimes a, a prebiotic. And so it's just s- chemically, structurally, it's different. Um, the soluble fiber that is a prebiotic can't be broken down mastically. can't be broken down in the, in the gastric acids. The reason why it's prebiotic is because it has a molecular structure that beneficial microorganisms living inside of you have the right kind of set of tools to open up. So it delivers basically useful nutrients right to the beneficial microorganisms that you're trying to grow. Now there are some things historically pretty much everything that's been classified as a prebiotic has also fallen into the soluble fiber bucket. Recently, Mm -hmm. the FDA has expanded the definition of prebiotics. So there's things like uh, the certain polysaccharides, the certain uh, metabolites. There are some other ingredients that fall outside of the fiber spectrum that technically also have been shown to have a beneficial effect on the growth of certain microorganisms and therefore get the tag of prebiotic.
3: Amazing. And you took sort of the idea of Americans need more fiber and they need these prebiotics and Americans really like soda. And let's just hash the two together and and disrupt the whole thing. Correct. Yeah. (laughs) Right. I want to get to Eli since you've been sitting patiently um, and hear a little bit about how you came to your career. Um, I feel like you are the like customer service whisperer. I feel like you're <laughs> always, I don't know. And I and I think you know you said something in a LinkedIn post or you said something at some point about not just sort of appeasing the consumer, but really thinking about it as a marketing channel. And I quote you all the time. Um, I think the question always gets to is like, how? Um, how, how do you sort of um, do customer service in a different way or in a special way or in a way that really reflects the ideals of the company, which we'll get to? Um, but I want to hear how you ended up being the customer experience guy Um, obviously you were at a couple of other companies before, and I'm curious about the difference between how it, how it works at different places. And I also think it's really interesting. You guys haven't met in person yet. Um, (laughs) Mm -hmm. so I'm kind of curious about that. So Eli, I'm going to let you talk about your career for a couple minutes and then, um, talk about how you guys met, and then we're going to take a break and then get into serious um, tactical support for founders out there. So take Sounds it away. Great.
2: Yeah. Sounds great. Thank you so much. Um, it's it's pretty funny. I feel like I've, I've been doing this for like five, six years. And mm-hmm. I think in April was when I started kind of tweeting some of the thoughts that I, I thought were a little different than what everyone else in the space was saying, and it it kind of took off, which is which is weird and humbling at the same time. But yeah. um, I'm glad that I'm glad that people are kind of taking this uh, this new approach to customer experience, and I think that kind of ties into the difference between like customer service and customer experience. You know, whether mm-hmm. it's a it's a reactive measure where you know something's broken, let's fix it, versus constantly being proactive and and looking ahead as to like how can we you know make this experience more effortless? How can we remove friction? How can we grow a brand and and use it as a marketing channel? But before I, before I hop into that, um, a little bit about me, I worked at a couple of small companies in Jersey as a, as a young adult. Um, as a, as a child, I think I was fairly charismatic, which, which kind of pushed my parents to constantly tell me I should be doing sales. Um, Mm -hmm and my first couple of jobs were sales and I I just really hated it. Like I Mm -hmm. I felt that my superpower was like understanding people and it felt like, yeah, it felt like using that to sell someone something just didn't feel right. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And I started traveling at the age of like 21. Um, That was my kind of like substitute for college. I, I figured instead of taking all that money to to go to school and learn something. I'm not even sure I want to learn at that age. Mm -hmm. I'd rather kind of go out and and get a little real life MBA um, and learn about people and culture. And I, I ended up in, in Israel, um, which is when I kind of got really excited about the startup, the startup world. Um, Tel Aviv had like a pretty fantastic scene then. um, And that's kind of where I found this uh, direct consumer luggage company. Um, Mm -hmm. When I joined, I think it was like 2014. um, I kind of, fell in love with the idea of direct consumer because of the connection you are able to mm-hmm. have with customers. And and yeah. that went both ways. You know, if you, if you mess something up, you heard about that really fast. You're very <laughs> open
3: to them. Yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> and if you did something right, you heard about that really fast. And I yeah. thought that that kind of was just this insightful way of, of creating a company based on immediate feedback loop. Um, and, and at that stage, I think I just started getting, super interested in in customer experience but that wasn't my first role at, at all these companies it was much more a general role these were companies that had four or five employees um Olipop is actually the largest company i've ever been at so right. i was at these tiny companies doing all these more generalist you know jobs i was doing ops i was doing logistics this was like a kickstarter company so we were shipping to 64 countries with six different warehouses wow. i always kind of excelled with the with the customer experience part of it, because I felt like there was there was kind of between the lines that the customers weren't saying, but were saying, and nobody else was catching that. Um, yeah, no,
3: I mean, in that, I, I think, you know, I'm going to interrupt you for a second, because I think so much of what we've, so much of what I've learned doing this podcast, and what I've learned sort of being in brick and mortar, and now in like the CPG world is that You know, like you said before, Ben, you want to make sure that you have a product that actually solves a human problem. Mm -hmm. And you want to make sure that, like, you're not just, you know, throwing something into the wind that you hope that people like, but that you're actually in service of people somehow. And yet, a lot of times, you know, we put this thing out that's theoretically out there to solve a problem, but then for some reason, the consumer almost becomes sort of like the impediment to you putting something out there. Like Mm -hmm. they, they're, it's like companies forget that empathy and, and consumers, you know, I mean, there's like a, a quote attributed to Henry Ford. We're not sure if it was actually him who said it also, I think, He might've been an anti-Semite, which is a problem when I'm quoting him, but nonetheless. He had a couple issues. Yeah, a couple (laughs) issues, but he had a few good ones. And one of them was like, if you ask people, you know, what kind of car they wanted, they'd say like a faster horse or whatever the expression Mm -hmm. is, right? People don't necessarily know how to tell you what they need because they don't have like the lexicon for it yet. And so I, I hear what you're saying about sales. Because sales ends up not really being so much about what the consumer needs. It's it's about mm-hmm. sort of the deals and the trade and the promotions and like, you know, th- that. Whereas, you know, customer experience, you are really going back to like, is this, am I really solving your problem? Am I solving one problem, but creating another problem? Mm-hmm. And you're learning all the time, like, what are the other problems that you have that I can be helpful with? So I can totally see. I can totally see how you fell in love with it.
2: Yeah. I think, I think like for me, one of the interesting things that I thought of early on, and I actually had a conversation with, with David um, when I was David from Ollipop, when I was interviewing, we had this conversation, you know, he asked me what, what is it that you think DTC brands are just kind of missing Mm There's something that they're missing. And, and I think for me, the most interesting thing is that, you know, Most of these customers are finding brands on Facebook through an ad or, you know, they're they're getting this tiny little snapshot of a brand. They're seeing it looks beautiful, looks delicious, looks great. They click that ad. They enter this, you know, $100,000 snazzy website. They scroll down. They're they're on this like hype train where they're just like enthralled by a brand. They Mm -hmm. click place order. They spend whatever money they spend. And then there's radio silence for a week and a half until they get it. And- that immediacy that you have in retail, where you can pick up a nice cold can from a fridge and a Whole Foods and and kind of drink it right away and and feel that, is kind of lost. And that mm-hmm. magic in DTC is just is just lost. And and brands have you know historically tried to up that up with a with a fancy unboxing experience, mm-hmm. and, and that's all fun. But what I see is that sometimes customers, you know, three four days into it, they're kind of feeling like, was that the right decision to spend right. that kind of money? Yeah. and that's like. Something that I think about almost daily that I think a lot of brands, you know, aren't thinking about is like, what do we do to keep the magic in that time frame? Like, what do we do to kind of keep that almost, quote unquote, hype that they had when they click place order that they're feeling the same excitement up until they get that box. And then the unboxing is just a seamless experience that continues to level up. Yeah. Yeah.
3: No, that's such a great, that that's I, I just took a big note and made a big star next to it, which means I'm going to slack that to my team <laughs> the minute <laughs> that we finish recording. Um, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to get into more because this is, we could do this for a few hours, but we only have like 23 more minutes. Um, okay, we'll be right back.
1: All of us at HRN have been keeping busy despite working and recording from home. This fall, we're proud to announce new shows on the network that each bring important and enlightening stories to listeners around the world. While the world is in turmoil and the future of our country is uncertain, there are certain constants that help keep us going. For us, food and storytelling are essential. While we can't come together in person, Food podcasts from HRN can provide a virtual table we can all gather around. Bringing exceptional stories to your ears and keeping you informed on the ever-changing political and environmental issues of our time is integral to our mission. At a time when the world around us is rapidly changing, HRN is committed to being here for our listening community, and we need you to be here for us. Join our table And help ensure the future of food radio by becoming a member of HRN. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to make a contribution. Check out the latest additions to our lineup while you're there. You can see all of our series at heritageradionetwork.org slash new shows.
3: I'm back with Ben and Eli from Olipop. Um, Okay. So, I mean, I have so many questions, but I want to stay on customer experience for a minute and then we'll go back to sort of um, Olipop as a business and and the questions I have about that. But um, one of the things that I wanted to, to ask you is just, you know, you said something really interesting in the beginning about, you know, customer service is almost the way you're framing it is that there's something that's gone wrong and you have to repair it. Customer experience, if I'm kind of paraphrasing you, right. Is that you're sort of mitigating for that ahead of time. And you're looking, looking forward to, to create a better experience so that those things don't break as often, or you don't end up having to sort of be like in repair mode. Um, Is that, is that kind of the way that you Mm -hmm. frame it?
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's fair.
3: And, and, Like, is there something that you do? I mean, I'll give you a very specific example, right? Again, my team and I, we had a brick and mortar cooking school, we were customer service to us means like you are looking at the person whose coffee is not hot, or who didn't like the class or who, you know, just had a bad day, and you learn very early on, that this is usually not about the coffee or the class. Um, mm-hmm. It's usually just like someone needs someone to hear them. And so you learn very early on that it's just about having someone feel heard. Um, mm-hmm. In in the case of D2C, it's actually different for us because we're getting like, we got you know, we have a perishable product. It we have 85 things that say, like, it's perishable. Remember, it's coming and you need to be there and it needs to go in the fridge. And now we're getting people sort of saying, like, I forgot and I left it out. Can I have a refund? And our customer service sort of bones from the brick and mortar want to make them happy and want to replace the case and, and want to do all of that. But honestly, We're also sort of like, well, we can't be sending, you know, $70 cases to people who leave it out on their own time. So that's a specific question for you. Like, how do you kind of approach those issues? And we know there are going to be more and more of them. And then the flip side of that is you said something interesting in the beginning, too, which is, you know, not just when there's negative feedback, but having a really good connection when there's positive feedback, I want to make sure we're capitalizing on that as well. So I'd love to hear what you would do if you were me about the cases that are left out in the sun. Um, And then secondly, a sort of a a positive, you know, how you handle the positive feedback.
2: Um, That's a great question. I think a question that a lot of brands Um, face every day. I mean, especially brands like, you know, when I was at Nuggs and they were, Nugs was sending these uh, frozen, you know, non-chicken chicken chicken nuggets. Um, Mm -hmm. I think the interesting thing is the way, the way I think about these things is like, what, what is it that we're missing that's making customers not see the 300 reminders that we're placing throughout the box? Um, right. and trying to think of a more creative way of maybe, you know, adding that to a welcome email what, mm-hmm. or a order confirmation in a fun way that feels like we're not lecturing customers. Um, and we're kind of taking it in a playful way. Um, mm-hmm. Almost the way I think about, you know, the Smokey the Bear uh, phenomenon, right. you know, how they took, you know, being cautious about wildfires and, and made it, you know, cutesy and fun to, to get right. people's attention. Um, you know, at, at Olipop, I think, we, we do what we can to kind of get into the mind of the customer. And, and, you know, obviously there's an, there's an element where if somebody spends a crazy amount of money and they're, they're really unhappy, we really, really want to do what we can to make these customers happy, but also, you know, being mindful that this is a a company that, you know, we have to, we have to do what we, what what we can to best remedy the underlying issue um, Mm -hmm. instead of seeing it as, you know, one, one thing at a time. Um, Right. And to kind of, you know, flip back on on proactive, I think I think the interesting thing about customer experience as a whole, you know, they say that the, I heard a statistic that the, the average turnover for a customer experience representative is, you know, every three months or something wild like that. Um, and mm-hmm. I think that it's entirely, I mean, it's just catch 22, where if you're really good at customer experience, you have high levels of empathy. Um, yeah, and and the catch 22 is that, yep. yeah, is that you feel that right when somebody yeah. says that they spent a lot of money that they saved for a really long time, and mm-hmm. they got the product, and they didn't like that, that hurts you, right? So, yeah, sure. so I think that the kind of the, 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 the weird and interesting way that we go about this is like by turning this proactive i feel like you know my team which is fantastic gets an opportunity to interact with people when they're happy as well um mm-hmm. and a, an interesting thing we did was like last month we sent 75 snake plants to customers to make their day bright you know like this mm-hmm. is this wasn't anyone that ever had a problem with our brand we we picked a cohort and and said you know these are the people we we're, we're going to send something fun to um and and my team engaging with those people you know sending in an email with a photo and being like you know, this is the first time any brand has ever done that. Mm-hmm. And, and to, to think about, you know, okay, this is like $1,500, $2,000. Right. We, not, we changed the yeah. game, right? So these right. people end up turning into brand promoters. And without even thinking twice, these are people that are telling their friends, like, holy moly, look what this brand did. That's a marketing tool without us trying to turn it into one. Right. Um and that's kind of more broadly how I see customer experience. When people are thrilled and when people are excited about not only the product—I mean, obviously the product with Olipop does the talking—but when they're thrilled about an experience, not only when they have a difficult situation, it just turns these people into super fans. And you know, like yeah. when we decide to lean in on on these kind of things, for example, when we launched our, our orange squeeze, excuse me, our orange squeeze. You know, we. Mm-hmm we had a message that was sent for like a text through our texting platform that was sent from Ben with just explaining why he created this and what went into the, the flavor formula. We, you know, we sold $10,000 in 15 minutes. So yeah, when we want amazing. to lean in, you know, we have the yeah. ability to lean in with these super fans and kind of really, really blow it out of the park.
3: And, and going back to Nugs for a second, right? So Nugs has this very sort of irreverent, you know, the whole, all of their terminology, all of the way that they, you know, their website, their their messaging, everything is very sort of, I think, irreverent is like a really good mm-hmm. word for it. Whereas Pop is like, like happy and sunshiny, and you know, it. Did you do you find that the 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 tone of the brand is translated in the way that customer experience happens or a thousand is it... percent. yeah
2: okay yeah i think that the customers inherently are different um customers right. customers kind of look for brand that aligns with their values and i think you know in, in the next five to ten years we'll see that even more that people yeah. are not buying from brands just because they like a product or just because yes. of the price and we we have a million examples you know of brands that offer cheap pricing but customers would rather pay for for a, mm-hmm. something that matches their tonality and their values. And, and it yeah. was extremely insightful to see, you know, the differences in, in tone from customer emails, you know, customers yeah. over there talk differently than customers at Olipop. And it's it's interesting because I think Olipop as a brand, like, you know, like you're saying, it's, it's happy, it's friendly. The North Star is like talking to customers like people and, and not a ticket. And, and I think that like, in fact, like Olipop as a brand was kind of built that way and, you know, you know, yeah ben and 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 everyone from the top down you know we're we're a brand that spent years you know research and development on a product that's actually good for you a, a culture that really cares about personal growth and mental health like this is like it's it's fascinating to me how that kind of goes top town you know yeah. for, and and that's like for me that was the most exciting part about joining Olipop is you know, great customer experiences in their DNA, like as people, you know, they, yeah. they want to make other people happy. And kind of, for me, this is like the most exciting job I've ever had where I have yeah. like the bandwidth and the resources to kind of build out my dream yeah. customer experience function. <laughs>
3: no, that makes and that's sense.
2: like, yeah, the most exciting part for me is like, you know, just being able to dive in and dig in and kind of bring this feedback and continuing, continuing yeah.
3: to build. Then back to you for a second, because... You know, I, right now I have five people on my team. The DNA of the company is essentially my DNA. The Jungian archetype of the company is essentially my Jungian archetype. Like we, as we hire more people, as you hired more people, how did you make sure or how were you comfortable, um, knowing that, that all of the things in you know, all of the values and the goals that you had creating the product were going to translate as the team got bigger, and inevitably, you're not in every discussion, and you're not on every team, and certainly not in every meeting. Like were there hiring yeah. things that you did specifically that? Oh, for know, sure. Yeah,
4: yeah. I mean, and you can see just you know, first of all, great job to Eli for articulating his thoughts and the way he did. I mean, you you can obviously see why it was such a pleasure for us to have the opportunity to hire him and and work with him. And uh, we are blown away by his work every day. And so it's a, you know, just like tremendous gratitude for him uh, on a variety of different levels. Uh, The one other thing I will say, and it actually does tie into your question, um, but it also serves as a standalone, you know, I've been thinking while we've been having this discussion and obviously part of my uh, function is to constantly be thinking about these things, but you know, back to even that comment you made around the Henry Ford quote, and, and it's like I've been—I have to, you know—I I have to think about leadership all the time and, and trying to, to define it. You know, and if you're going out to the marketplace with a product that is effectively trying to lead or be disruptive or create something new, you know, more or less, you have to take a leadership position. And I, I actually think that one of the ways of defining truly good leadership um, is. A good leader is aware of what's happening uh, under the surface for him or herself Mm -hmm. and has the empathy and awareness to have a sense of what's going on under the surface for others, whether that's an individual you're talking to, whether that's a group, uh, also whether that's society. And then the leader, being aware of their own underlying mechanics, being aware of the underlying mechanics of the other, uh, calls to a higher purpose from a place that is, that strikes a lot deeper. And yeah. that is one of the, one that's one of the mechanisms by which, you know, so y- you, by assessing those kind of inner or subconscious terrains, you do get to these solutions that are something that maybe a customer needs or wants or could benefit from, but isn't able to articulate yet. And then that can pass its way through all the different kind of functions of The product in the company.
3: Well, and I think this speaks to something much bigger that is very interesting, especially in the times of COVID. So there are, like you said, there are really good products. They're less expensive products. You know, we talk about like what's table stakes these days. It's, you know, you can't, you can't not have a good product. That's not a differentiator. Something being better for you, not a differentiator, right? Having every single like icon and, you know, non this and good for that on your package, again, not a differentiator, but what does seem to be sort of separating out, you know, and, and I think the companies that seem to be withstanding the pressure test of COVID is this leadership, right? And it goes, it makes sense that we're connecting sort of, you're talking about self-awareness and awareness of others. And Eli, you're talking about empathy I think, unfortunately, in the last several years, there have been a bunch of brands that have been just like founder ego led (laughs) and money just flying at those egos. And they didn't do the work to know themselves. They didn't really do the work to have empathy for their consumer. And they're finding themselves in a little bit of a pickle, you know? Yeah. Yeah.
4: Well, I mean, that's the thing, like, you know, so I, I think people get caught in these conceptual and, you know, I'm one to speak because I can be a pretty conceptual person, but I think people get kind of caught in these like conceptual traps and frameworks um, and what they don't in terms of like, oh, here's the little strategy that does this, or here's the strategy that does that. Like, and to me, that's kind of bullshit. Like yeah. at the end of the day, I'm living, a, I'm, I, so as this co-founder, as this formulator, I'm living a life. And I'm very cognizant of my own eventual uh, aging and demise. So I am trying to live a life where I uh, actually have set out values that I continuously uh, grow towards and live. Um, And so then as a part of that, I would naturally try to put the extra effort into finding out what's real inside of myself, finding out what's real inside of others, and finding out what's real in, in terms of the people I'm hiring, finding out what's real in terms of the, of the, of the product marketplace, like et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like basically yeah. m- ensuring that there's kind of alignment that works all the way through. I think if you have something that's well executed, well thought through is getting to the base of what's real. Um, yes, you can bring a bunch of different individual strategies then to assist with the maximal mm-hmm. execution of that underlying reality. But right. we do live in a culture where oftentimes people walking around aren't the. the it's like the core is gone, yeah, and right. it's just these like you know borderline sociopathic <laughs> little tendrils that come out to like execute things without people having a lot of awareness of like what's happening at the core level. So that also well, we live
3: in that we live in that culture, right? I mean, that's yeah. that's the that's the problem with. Uh, world that is basically social media dominated and, you know, products that, you know, there are gazillions of products out there that you can swipe up to buy. Half of them haven't been vetted. Some of them are out of someone's, you know, basement somewhere. Hopefully claims are all over the place. No one can keep up with like what the latest is, what's real, what's not. So it's very easy to get caught and lost in, in sort of that surface level semi-sociopathic realm. Um, And I mean, I think what you're saying, and I I think this kind of goes to like all of my questions and it's really interesting because I was like, how come the branding is so good? How come the team is so connected? How come like you guys just seem to hit it? Whatever Whatever you're putting out is just so good and right. And I think maybe the answer to that isn't like, well, here's how you do. But what you're saying is like, because you've taken the time and you're doing the work to get to some kind of truth that is underneath all of the hoopla. And it's just becoming, it's, it's just manifesting itself. And it's very obvious to people who are interacting with it.
4: Yeah, I think I think it's a great great point and I think that also ties in really to your question about hiring. I mean, one of mm-hmm. you know, we have we do have a pretty robust hiring system and you know, one of the, we're looking obviously for operational skill set excellence, like that's to your point about how you kind of have to have a, a good, you know, better few products no longer a differentiator. Mm-hmm. Obviously, if you want to join a business yeah. a business that's growing by a 1000%, you need to be excellent in your operational skill set. But the thing that actually Uh, turns the tables about whether or not we end up going with the candidate or not is are these kind of, I call them like depth charges. And I, I did Eli uh, interview Eli pretty thoroughly. And so he's got personal experience with this, but you know, I really try to get into, especially dependent on the position, like the higher up in the company, the position is the deeper I I demand going, but it's like you know, I do try to really get to the core of like what's really motivating this person? What level of self awareness do they have? What level of psycho- psychological awareness? Have they done a lot of self work? Are they comfortable with the uh, reality of personal development? You know, these are all things. And then obviously, how that happens to organically line up with the different values and kind of critical thought capacities yeah. that we want to have as a culture. Uh, if you can bring that into the mix, and have cultural alignment, and have operational skill sets, and then have good onboarding systems and good cultural resonance building systems. Once they're in the company, you know this. So this kind of is like an answer that addresses: you guys haven't met each other yet. How do you work together? Right. How do you hire people? What you know? How do you communicate to consumers? It actually still kind of all lines up on this because it's uh, getting to those deeper, those deeper kind of realities, and then having really great, healthy empowerment devices and a certain amount of, of healthy autonomy uh, once those people are inside of your system right. can still build a really good culture uh, and a really good selection criteria, you know, even while things are remote and uh, kind of hectic.
3: No. And I think that makes a lot of sense. We have to, we have to finish cause Jess is likes it when I'm on time, but it, it is, it is really interesting because when I think about hiring, you know, I think at the beginning of my sort of like, being in a position to hire, I definitely went with my gut. And then I kind of felt like I hired people who maybe didn't fit the skill sets perfectly. And so then I kind of went in the other direction and I was like, I'm only hiring for skill set. And like, I'm not going to do that gut thing because I tend to like people and I tend to find things in them that I like and you know, maybe confirmation bias. Yeah, exactly. And, and now I'm kind of leaning back onto the other thing where I do think like those depth charges is the way to do it. Because if I really think about it and it's, it's nothing against anybody, but like the people that haven't really worked out, there's been a misalignment, not in necessarily the skills or the expectations, but in that, in that sort of what is motivating someone? And I don't know. I think you can kind of go back and figure out where maybe things took a wrong turn because the motivation was different than maybe our motivation is as a team.
4: Yeah. Um, we could have a whole conversation on, on hiring. No, you guys,
3: we could yeah, just like yeah. do this every week. We could just have the Ben <laughs> Eli Alley podcast ruin the sauce. <laughs> um, but I do want to wrap because I want to be mindful of Jess and, um, I, you know, I appreciate you guys coming on. It's hard to have two because you each obviously should have had your own episode for sure. But I thought it would be kind of fun just to have you in communion with each other. Um, but I want to thank you both for coming on, Ben. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having us. Eli, thank you. <laughs> Thanks
2: a million. We, we um, definitely are a dynamic duo, right, Ben? <laughs>
3: that's yeah. That's right,
2: the most dynamic.
3: <laughs> <laughs> um, Jess, thank you for being the best engineer. All of you listeners, um, I just love... Their, I'm, I'm surprised all of you are still listening. Apparently, podcast listening is down, but you're all saying, no, it's not. I'm still super pumped, so... I will keep um, making episodes and um, I hope they're helpful. And I'll be next week, I'll have my 100th episode of In the Sauce. 99 wow. um,
4: so. 99's not too bad. 99, and don't forget, yeah, the winner. Quick plug for us you can find us on drinkollipop.com and drinkollipop is also our social media
3: A 100%. And if you haven't in, been following Olipop, follow them.
4: Yeah. And we're in over 4,500 uh, retail locations now nationally as well. So there's a store yeah. lo- locator. On the website if you want to support your local retailer um you know brick and mortar retailers definitely need as much support as they can get right now so we encourage people to pick them up in either location
3: totally all right amazing um i'll be back next week in the sauce is powered by simplecast thanks for listening to heritage radio network food radio supported by you for our freshest content subscribe to our newsletter